We don't live in a world that is fair. We don't live in a world where every time that we experience life, there's justice. We have all experienced disappointment and rejection. We've all been lied to. We have all had times in our lives where we've been treated poorly or unfairly. And so every one of us at some point on certain levels have experienced the sting of injustice. And so when you are treated unfairly, when, when you are wronged, because I don't, I don't ask if, because all of us on this fallen world do experience it. The question is when. When we experience an injustice, when we are wronged, how do you typically respond? And so today we're continuing our preaching series through the Psalms, a series called Uplifted. So a journey through the Psalms. And we've been learning what God has to say to us about our emotions, about our feelings. And yes, this includes guys because we also feel to be human is to have feelings. And by emotions, what we're talking about by definition is feelings, but specifically feelings that express your beliefs and that influence your motives and actions. And so how you feel is actually a reflection of something much deeper, of what what you truly believe. And not only that, but your emotions will impact. They'll impact how you think and how you behave. And so emotions are very powerful. And to be human, again, is to have emotions. But the question is, are our emotions being transformed by the Spirit of God? Because God made us as emotional beings because God has emotion. Now, God and His emotions, He's perfectly holy as we sung. Perfect. And yet, we, reflecting His image, have emotions, but sometimes our emotions aren't holy. And so, the focus of this series, so the series theme, if you will, it's on the screen, is that as we internalize God's truth, our emotions will be transformed and we'll be able then to worship Jesus more authentically. So the goal is that as we're focusing, as we're internalizing God's truth, the Spirit of God is at work, and then He transforms our emotions, and then with that, we're able to truly live for Christ more effectively, more faithfully. So the aim of this series over the summer, as we go through the Psalms, is that we would have our souls uplifted. That's what I want for myself, but for everyone in this room and those that are on holiday, who will return soon, I'm praying, I miss our loved ones, is that we would have our souls truly uplifted. And so we've been learning about how to maintain healthy emotions. We've talked about things like anger and loneliness. And today we're talking about resentment or bitterness. So we're talking about overcoming resentment. And we're looking at that by meditating on Psalm 94. Now, if you'll turn there, I'll remind you, we talked about this last week as we talk about Psalms, is most of them have a a title or a header, which is helpful because it lets you know the context, lets you know the historical setting or who wrote it possibly. This Psalm, Psalm 94, doesn't have one. So we don't know who wrote it, and we don't know the exact historical context But we know that God's Spirit inspired it. We know that it applies to you and me today. And we do know from reading Psalm, as we will hear this morning, we do know that God's people were suffering. 
That's in the context of the psalm. But we also know that they were suffering specifically at the hands of evil men. And so there were evil people that were making life very difficult. It was making it impossible. And so God's people are in anguish. And so this psalm focuses on how can you find hope and healing? How can you truly overcome resentment when things all around you are filled with injustice? And so the primary truth, the main idea from Psalm 94 is that God cares for his people when they suffer from injustices. And it's not an if, again, it's a when, that God cares for his people when they are suffering from injustices. And so when people hurt you, God cares. When you are wronged, God cares. When you are slandered, God sees, He knows, and He cares. He knows. God sees the pain. He sees the injustice that happens to you. And as your father, you you can be assured that He cares for you. But our question for this morning as we consider this psalm is, how should we respond? When we have injustice that comes our way, when we're wronged, when we're hurt by others, how do we as a people of God respond to that? And I want to show you from this text three specific ways that God will want us to respond to injustice. Number one, it's on your screen if you're taking notes. Number one is when you experience injustice, you call upon God. That's the starting place. When we experience injustice, we call upon God. Our God. Let's read Psalm 94, verses 1 through 7. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, and the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. So what you see here is God's people, you can hear it in the psalmist's voice. They're suffering. There's great anguish that the Israelites are experiencing at the hands of evil men, and the call is, Oh Lord! They're calling out to God in this injustice. And the psalmist refers to God as, Oh Lord, God of vengeance, in verse 1. And he says, Oh judge of the earth. He says, Repay the evil for what they deserve. And then he says, The wicked are exulting. To exult means to delight in to find joy. And so we are called to exalt God. That means to lift up, to lift up His name. But to exalt is not to exalt. Exalt means to delight in, to find joy in. And so whatever it is that that you are, that you enjoy, it should be Christ first and foremost, but things that you enjoy, you are exulting in. And so these men are exulting in evil. They're finding joy They're boasting about it. 
They don't have any remorse for what they're doing. And what exactly are they doing? It says they're crushing your people, God. It says that they're afflicting is the words used. And then it's pretty harsh. It says that they're murdering the most innocent and defenseless people in society. It says that they're bloodthirsty for widows. They kill widows and they kill the fatherless, orphans. And sojourners, ones that are traveling and are on their way, they're traveling and they're on the road and they're being ambushed and killed. And so the most defenseless and hopeless people, the orphans and widows are being assaulted and crushed and afflicted. And what is the attitude of these evil men? The attitude in verse 7 says, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. God doesn't see what's happening. The psalmist is in anguish here. His soul is in such agony because of incredible hurts that has happened. He's been so wounded by these evil men, and they're hurting not just him, but the people of God as a whole. And so he's in pain over injustice. And so when when you are wronged, when you experience injustice, again, the question is, how do you respond when people hurt you? And for those of us that are married, it would seem like the main person that could hurt you is your spouse, that person that you should love the most, that person that knows all of your faults and yet stays with you. It's just mind-boggling to me that my wife stays with me. She knows me, all of my past and my problems, and, and she knows, and she prays for me, holds me accountable, and stays with me. It's amazing. And yet it's my wife who can make me more mad than anyone else can. And I know it's not just me. And we can hurt each other. And what we do is we tend to hurt those closest to us. And so when people hurt you, how do you respond? Do you get angry? Do you you shout? Maybe you try to get even? Maybe you want them to feel pain because you're feeling pain that they inflicted on you, so then... You want to retaliate and make them feel pain so that they know what it feels like. And so we, in our minds, justify evil and we pay back with evil. But we read earlier in the worship gathering, a brother Bud read out of 1 Peter 3, where it says, do not pay back evil for evil. But it's easy and natural for us to do. In the middle of the psalmist feeling so wronged and offended and hurt and this great injustice, he doesn't retaliate. He doesn't go and get even. He calls upon God. He prays. He took his pain to God. He's saying, oh, Lord, oh, God, oh, judge. He's calling out to God. Now, what the psalmist is not doing here, he's not minimizing the sin that's been done to him. He's not minimizing He's also not denying the grief that he's feeling. He's not excusing the offense. He's not hiding from the truth. He's not numbing the pain. We talked about this last week. How people would numb pain with with too much drinking or too much sleep or too much social media or whatever, too much TV, and we just want to numb the pain. He's not numbing. He's not hiding or excusing. He's being honest. He's crying out to God. He's praying, saying, God, I'm really hurt. 
this is really painful. This person really hurt me. I need your help. Crying out, he says, oh, God of vengeance, oh, judge of the earth. Why is it so important that he says that he is a God of vengeance and he is a judge? Because the psalmist knows that vengeance belongs to God. That when we try to get even, when we want revenge, it only hurts us. Vengeance belongs to God. And getting back at someone will not heal you. Getting back will not heal the wounds that were inflicted on you. We'll talk more this morning on what will. But here, this first point is that we have to see how the psalmist begins is in the middle of the injustice he calls out to God. Have you ever felt crushed, as the psalmist describes here? Have you ever felt afflicted, as he says? Have you ever felt maybe that in verse 7, the evil people in your life, whoever they might be, that make your life so difficult for you? Maybe, maybe you feel like verse 7 is accurate. God doesn't see. God is not paying attention. Maybe you think, well, where exactly is God? Have you ever thought that to yourself? Are you, are you struggling maybe because you have had injustices inflicted upon you? Maybe, maybe you've fallen into a pattern of, of bitterness or of resentment because of those hurts. Now, by definition, I'll give you the textbook definition of bitterness. Is bitterness is anger and dis- so anger and disappointment at being treated unfairly, or resentment. So they're synonymous, bitterness and resentment. Same meaning is being angry or disappointed because you were treated unfairly, because of an injustice. Something was done to you that wasn't right. You were hurt, objectively, real pain, and yet you're responding with anger and disappointment and not forgiving and not letting go. Bitterness, resentment, it's cancer. It's cancer to your soul. Much like cancer, bitterness can start small and go undetected deep inside of you. But if gone untreated, it'll spread and it'll grow. And eventually it will consume and it will destroy you. Much like cancer does, that's the same thing that bitterness does to us inside. So the question is, how does someone become bitter? or resentful? How does, how does that happen? How do we fall into these patterns? Well, it starts with being hurt. It starts with being offended, like we see here with the psalmist. I'm afflicted. I'm crushed. They're evil. They're hurting us. I'm being attacked. And so when someone hurts you, then that is the first step. But at that point, what happens is we have a choice to make. And if we choose to stay angry, we choose to focus on the pain we, we choose to keep meditating, to use that word, to keep focusing or thinking on the pain, on what they did to me, then what happens is, if you can't let that go, you'll begin to get bitter. You'll begin to become resentful towards that person or persons that have hurt you. And so why do we do that? Why do we as humans oftentimes choose to stay angry? Choose to stay disappointed. Choose to be bitter or resentful when we're wronged. Why do we choose that? I can think of two reasons. Maybe I'm wrong. My observations on myself and those that I see. I like to observe human nature. 
and always that's annoying sometimes for my wife, but it is, I'm a pastor, so deal. But as I make my observations, I, I think of two main reasons why people would choose to stay bitter. The first one is, it's an excuse to be mean. It really is. Bitterness can be an excuse to be mean. Have you ever known someone that is just a bitter person? They're embittered. They're cynical. Uh, they're just a toxic person. They're, they're nasty. They're mean to people. They're, they're, they're never pleasant. They lie about people, and they're always out to get others, and they always want to cut you down to get ahead and work. And people that, they're, they're just, they're not pleasant. They're mean-spirited people. Ever know someone like that? Now, don't, don't point fingers. We all have. Now, here's the thing. If you could talk to that person, if they were open up for a conversation, and if you said, man, you know, you're really mean. Why are you always so mean to everyone? I bet you if you ask that person, I can almost guarantee you every time what they're going to do. They're going to give you a list of reasons why they've been hurt. They'll talk about, oh, you know why I mean? Because so-and-so has hurt me, and you don't know what I've been through. I've been through so much pain, and I've, I've been afflicted with this and with that, and this person has hurt me, and my father wasn't there, or, or I was abused, or whatever it is. And they'll go through the long list of all the times that they've experienced an injustice. And now they believe that because they've been afflicted, and they've had injustice towards them, that justifies them now being mean to other people. And, and, and you can't say to that person, you know, just because someone was unjust to you doesn't mean that you should now be unjust towards others because it might not listen to you, but the Holy Spirit, of course, changes hearts. But the truth is that in my observations is, Sometimes being embittered is, is very helpful for people because they get their way. They are angry, and they push people around. But the truth is that what this excuse to be mean will take you far from people and far from God. Bitterness is not helpful. Uh, another observation, another reason why I believe people choose to stay embittered is because they can control other people. People that are embittered tend to be able to c- control others. And so, say someone's been hurt. Let's use the example of, of a spouse. Suppose you have a spouse that was unfaithful. And they choose to get counseling and, and say the husband truly is repentant. And, but the wife will not forgive him, re- refuses to forgive him. And she holds that over his head. Oh, you cheated on me. Oh, you were unfaithful to me. And so now he is forced to always do everything that she wants, and she then dominates and controls him because he was unfaithful. And so she can then hold that over his head to control him. And so a lot of times staying embittered and not forgiving is a means to have control over another person. Very self-centered. But for whatever reasons, maybe you can think of why you or others might choose to stay embittered and resentful. The bottom line is this, that if you want to experience healing and be able to overcome resentment and bitterness, the first thing you have to do is respond to God by calling out to him in prayer. You have to give it 
to him. You have to be honest about how you've been hurt and don't deny it, don't minimize it, but be honest with it because this is real evil that's been experienced here and yet he's giving it to God and choosing not to be resentful. So the first way is call out to God. The second way to respond to injustice is contemplate on the character of God. So first we call out to him, and the secondly we contemplate on the very character of God. So we focus on who God is, as the psalmist does in the next section here. So verses 8 through 15. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. They are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. So we see here, this, this text is revealing God's nature, who he is. And so the psalmist is saying, God, I am suffering from this injustice. And then the, the evil ones, no, God doesn't see. No, God doesn't know. There is no God in heaven. Verses 8 through 11 should be a source of great hope and comfort for us when we're wronged. When people hurt us, these verses are so powerful. He says it's foolish. The little translation is senseless or stupid. Like it makes no sense. It's foolish to think that God doesn't know. So it says God made ears. Of course, he hears the injustice. God made eyes. Of course, God sees what's going on. He sees the injustice. And it says that he disciplines and he rebukes. And the Lord knows the thoughts of man. He knows our thoughts. He sees what's happening. God is not blind to the injustice that you're experiencing. So when you're wronged, when when people hurt you, you have to contemplate Focus your thinking. You have to meditate, not on the pain, not on what the person did to you, but instead shift your thinking and meditate, focus on who God is, on the very character of God, that he is your father and he is sovereign and he sees and he knows all things and he's holding you when you're in that pain. Just like when you who are parents, when your child comes to you, because they've been bullied or because they've had an injustice happen to them. Do you reject your child or do you hold your crying little boy or little girl and say, it's okay, it's going to be okay? If we as parents do this intuitively, how much more our Father in heaven? He sees and he knows. He cares about your pain. Verses 12 through 15 describe more of this character of God in the middle of being mistreated. He's focusing on who God is, suffering the hands of evil men who don't even have faith in God. But what he says 
is that God is still sovereign. He sees all things. He hears all things. He knows thoughts. He's in control. And by the way, God is also sovereign even over the actions of evil people that will hurt you. He's still in control of even the actions of man. We have free will, absolutely. And yet God is sovereign. Our minds can comprehend both of these truths, but they're both true. And we maintain this divine tension that we're accountable, moral agents, and yet God is sovereign even over the affairs of man. And so we can trust our God that he is working it out for good. There is a purpose in your pain. There is. Even if you're being assaulted wrongly, there is purpose in your pain. And verse 12 is a powerful reminder of that. Verse 12 says, listen, blessed is the man you discipline, O Lord, whom you teach out of your law. Now, at first glance, you think that verse doesn't belong there. God's people are being afflicted and crushed. They're the ones that are suffering. Why does it say that God is now disciplining the ones that he loves? You're thinking, wait, 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 wait. Aren't the Israelites being oppressed? Why, why is God not talking about disciplining the oppressed? disciplining his children whom he loves. It would seem as though it doesn't belong there, but it does because God is sovereign. You see, discipline is not punitive. It's not punishing. Discipline is not punishment. Discipline is not condemnation. They're different. There's a difference. Hebrews 12 describes this. I will read the whole section. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. Here's kind of a summary. It says, My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines those he loves. He corrects us. Discipline is teaching, instructing, correcting. That's what God does because we're his sons and daughters. So discipline is an act of love. When you see parents that don't discipline their children, I'm sorry, but they need to love their kids more. And discipline them. Because a child that is not taught discipline when, whenever he's young, when he grows up, he's not going to want to obey God. He hasn't obeyed his parents his whole life. Why would he submit to God? And so we teach our children to obey because we love them. God loves us too much to leave us where we are. And so those of you in the room, youth, that are here, listen. I'm serious. Listen. When your parents discipline you, it's because... They love you. When your parents say no, it's because they love you. When your parents spank you, with self-control, I didn't say abuse, but with self-control as a means to restore their relationship, it's out of an act of love to correct. And God does that with us. And so that's why you see discipline in the middle of this. And so God is using even these evil people to grow his 
people spiritually. So he uses painful circumstances to show us our need for him. God uses your pain, the rejection of experience, your disappointment, things that go badly for you. God is sovereign over that. And he's using those things to help you because he loves you, to grow you more. I was talking to a brother this week in our church, amazing man. And he was talking about how he almost left his job a few months ago because it was so bad, so much injustice and abuse. And yet, by God's grace, he hung in there and he was humble and he's grown and God has changed the circumstances in his work. It's just this amazing testimony and how God has grown. But he's a different person now than he was last year. And God used the absolute pain in his workplace to grow him. And God does that for you and me as well. It's correcting. It's growing us. It's teaching us. And he uses even injustices to accomplish his purposes, that we may see his glory revealed as we respond well to it. And we, but we have a promise, though, verses 13 and 14, that we'll have rest from days of trouble. The Lord would not forsake his people. So yes, he's going to use hard times to grow you. That's what he does. We need it. We need hard times. Otherwise, we won't grow. We'll get too comfortable, and and we'll forget to pray. We'll forget about Jesus. But we know that he won't forsake us. We have him. He says, not forsake us. He'll give us rest. God doesn't abandon you. You focus on him and how he is using these circumstances to sanctify you, to make you more holy. And so when things go wrong, when people are wronging you, the first thing we do is we first call out to God. We pray. And then secondly, we contemplate on the character of God, how he is good and has a plan and is using it for our good and for his glory. Lastly, number three, we respond to injustice by confirming our trust in God. So we reaffirm, we confirm our trust in God. Last section, verses 16 through end of the song. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocents to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God and rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. We all experience injustice, but this poem describes how to respond. Lastly here, it's trust. He says, who will stand for me against the evil? God stands for you. He says, the Lord has, if the Lord had not been my help, I would live in the land of silence. I'd be dead, but God has helped me. And he gives us the courage and the hope to respond well to injustice. He says, when I thought my foot is slipping, I thought I'm falling, I'm going in the pit. God's steadfast love holds us up. And he says, when the cares of my heart are many, when I'm so troubled 
and there's uncertainty, and there's accusations, and there's a difficult work environment, and there's injustice. When the cares of my heart are many, he says, your consolations cheer my soul. God cheers our soul. The Lord has become my stronghold, my rock of refuge. And so he is confirming his trust in the sovereign God who's working all things for his glory and for your good, even when it's by the hands of evil men. So overcoming resentment, it's right here. Let God, as you say, cheer my soul. Let God cheer your soul. Enjoy Jesus. Draw near to him as your refuge, as you reaffirm this trust. Don't turn to the things of this world that would give you fleeting pleasure or comfort. Turn to Christ. Let him be your refuge. And verse 18 is the key. He says, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Last week we talked about this. Steadfast love refers to God's covenant faithful love that was revealed at Mount Sinai when the Israelites were in slavery. God liberated them, and now they are at the foot of the mountain, and God is entering into a relationship with them, and this is God's covenant love, his steadfast love. It's referring to being saved, experiencing liberation from slavery, and entering into a relationship with God. And so steadfast love points to redemption. It points to salvation. God is merciful. He's so merciful to us. So do you want to overcome bitterness? I mean, really, do we want to overcome it? Here's how. Recognize your desperate need for God's grace. Do you want to overcome resentment? I'm serious. Do you really want to kill that? To let go of the anger and disappointment? To really experience peace and joy and forgive others. Do you want freedom from resentment? You have to recognize your desperate need for God's grace. When we recognize that, trusting in him, all of a sudden the resentment, the bitterness begins to evaporate. The more that you recognize your need for mercy, the more you know how much you've sinned against God and how much He's forgiven you, the more you'll be willing and able, empowered, to let the anger go and forgive those who hurt you. Let me just give it to you very simply in the word. One word, all right? Overcoming resentment, one word. Forgiveness. If you want the key to overcoming resentment, bitterness, How? Forgiveness. Admitting that you have a desperate need for forgiveness from God is what is going to fuel your ability to forgive others, let go of the anger, and not have any bitterness or resentment. We're called to forgive others because God in Christ has forgiven us. Jesus hung on the cross, dying for you and for me, and he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. They just nailed two spikes through my hands and one through my feet, and I'm dying, and I'm experiencing your wrath. Forgive them. Forgive them. Jesus is the picture of forgiveness. 
And when we realize our desperate need for forgiveness from God, our need for God's grace, then all of a sudden we'll forgive. So someone hurts you, and you think to yourself, they don't deserve my forgiveness. They hurt me so bad, betrayed my trust so badly. I can't forgive them. They don't deserve my forgiveness. What I would say to you is, you're right. They don't. They don't deserve your forgiveness. What they did to you is real and evil and sinful and does not deserve your forgiveness. But then again, you and I do not deserve God's forgiveness either. We don't deserve it. And it's not about deserving, it's about grace. That God has shown us grace, and so now we extend grace to others. So a grace-filled heart will allow you to overcome resentment. Now, does forgiving someone who's hurt you, does that minimize the offense that they've done to you? Does it erase the pain or does it undo? No, sometimes there's still consequences that have to be worked through even if you forgive. I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying here is we forgive because we want to experience God's joy again and reconcile relationships when it's possible. Forgiveness is hard. It's not easy to forgive, but by God's grace, we can. We can forgive those that hurt us. And then we beg and we trust that God's Spirit will heal our wounded souls. And God is our 